Three, two, one, live. Anthony Darby. Chuck Ken. Episode three of the Peninsula Podcast. We're going to keep it named that until we come up with a better name. Um, for those folks that were disappointed that we weren't talking about weed last week, please don't be in despair. This episode is all about cannabis and marijuana. Um, last week, we uh, took, first of just a recap, episode one, we kind of dove into Maryland's laws. It was pretty, pretty much Maryland-specific, a lot about cannabis. Uh, episode two, we did a 10,000 overview of hemp and uh, kind of the world, and then also more domestically and then state of Maryland. And then this week, we will go into all things cannabis in the United States. So uh, I'm going to dive into medical programs, rec programs, uh, decriminalization laws, we'll go into the variances, everything from consumption bars in Vegas and Alaska to programs in Colorado, Washington, medical programs that are successful, like Maryland, we'll dive into programs that struggle, um, Delaware, New Jersey, New York come to mind. Um and then obviously dive into what Maryland may look like if it were to go legalized. And I think that will probably be the end of our, our time. This is a pretty broad topic since there's a lot to go through with all of them. So we'll try our, we'll try our best to break them all down as we always do. Um, and it should be some really good information. Both got collared shirts on today. We brought on our do. fancy stuff. Ooh. I think uh, these, these topics, it's although nice they're broad, they're going to allow us to go down a few wormholes throughout them. So um, I think that's what will be enjoyable. So <clears throat> I think on its face, it seems like fairly obvious when I say the difference between a medical program or a adult use program. But there's some nuances that people don't, don't really uh, typically pick up on. I think the first one that I would argue is the biggest difference between an adult use program or several differences. One is going to be your access. So when you have a full adult use program, you're going to be able to walk in with a certain age restriction, likely over 21, and be able to purchase uh, marijuana or cannabis without needing any type of a physician recommendation or a prescription, uh, whatever they call it in that particular state. Uh, think of it as an access issue. So you basically have access as an adult to be able to go in to purchase uh, marijuana or cannabis. Um, typically in all medical states, there's going to be a prescription or some sort of a written recommendation, a mechanism in which a physician empowers you to obtain cannabis. Um, outside of the access issue, then I would, what I was getting ready to say was I would argue the next biggest difference is going to be the taxability. So you're typically not going to see um, medical programs garnering lots and lots of tax revenue for their states. It's not typically something that's very politically popular to go out and heavily tax a medicine. Um, however, you find the complete opposite when you look at the legalization adult use programs when we see taxes 25, 30%. Yeah, I mean, we'll get into why, it was like, when we start talking about it, some of these states, like Washington State, for instance, is 37% sales tax Woo! on all cannabis. So we can get into how much the state of Washington collected in tax revenue last year, too. So there, you know, there are, there are these nuances, and every state's going to do it a little differently um, if they have uh, dual programs where they have adult use and, um, and rec. Yeah, and I'll just say, and there is a distinction. When you look at the programs, a lot of the political cloud around the legalization of recreational marijuana comes from the taxes because, you know, they can fix a lot of things for the states. We'll get in, like we said, we'll get into how much revenue the states collect, but all states are in desperate need of better education systems. It's something we hear kind of all the time. It's something that rings true to our hearts. Um, I mean, there's deficits, there's unfunded pension liabilities. There's all kinds of things that they see this shining light of recreational cannabis tax can 
can kind of fix and on the medical side it really is treated as a medicine i mean when people come in our doors that's why they're there um and the variances of these are going to be everything from what types of products are available in each state so you know in maryland we didn't have edibles we, we now see that that bill passed and edibles are, are very shortly on their way here in maryland um some states don't have flour um some states don't allow high high thc concentrates so <clears throat> all these different characteristics um when you're looking at uh individualized state program are really reason why we see so much variance state by state and little continuity because it's tough for a company to compete using a basically a streamlined single strategy across the nation with every state having significantly different programs it would never work so <clears throat> that being said, let's go into some of the most extreme circumstances or some of the most mature of the, the legalized states. And let's go through before we get into that real quick verbiage. So it was recreational marijuana. It was, yeah, it was recreational. It was recreational is where it started. But people weren't necessarily uh, just using it for recreation, right? Uh, it was more about a, a full access use. So then we saw adult use. But then we didn't like the fact that they were called users. So then we got rid of adult use. And to the most PC term that I've heard to date are adult consumption markets. So when we look at these adult consumption it markets. It right off the tongue. Yeah, it goes right off the tongue, <laughs> like endocannabinoid system. Um, adult use markets um, like Vegas, Alaska. Uh, there's 12 total, correct? Uh, I think there's... 10 and D.C. 10 and D.C. 10 and D.C. So total. There's 33 medical states that have, that have some sort of a medical program to give you guys some understanding of numbers. Someone like uh, so Vegas the, went through a similar maturation process that a lot of states do. Nevada had a fairly robust medical program um, with a lot of gray areas. Um, there was kind of this gray market around delivery and some other things. And I think that they saw the best way to to do two things. One is to better police the program, but more more than anything, I believe they saw the tax dollars could come from having recreational uh, dispensaries in, in Vegas. And they saw all these people that were illegally bringing all their weed and vape pens to Vegas, and they weren't making any money off of it. So we see a little over, it was almost right around the same time that we opened up. Mm -hmm. We saw Vegas go wreck. Um, so they've probably been in about a year and a half of operation now. And then most recently, we saw them uh, follow the same foots as Alaska and actually go with adult consumption um, bill. So an adult consumption bill actually sets up the precedent of almost similar to what you'd find in a bar, a bar that serves alcohol, except it's going to be cannabis. You'd be able to consume cannabis with your peers and friends. You would be able to go there and, and purchase cannabis. It would be the closest thing to mimic a bar restaurant than we've ever seen in the United States. Yeah. And I think, and the fact that it's in the state of Nevada and Vegas, who has this notorious history with all these vices and that's why people go there. I think, you know, when these states go recreational, much like they do medical, the programs are going to reflect the values of the state, right. And kind of what the state's all about. So in places like Vegas where, you know, they're known for, Sex, drugs, and rock and roll and gambling, right? Like it's nothing for them to throw a wheat or a cannabis bar in the middle of town where a state, you know, in the south or maybe in the northeast that's liberal but a little bit more conservative. I think they'll take a different approach, and we've kind of seen that play out. And that's just my kind of opinion of how it's going to work. 
and so far it's been incredibly successful. So we've seen the dispensaries there have tons of volume. Um, we haven't heard any outcries of the city coming to a screeching halt because now all of a sudden cannabis is around and they're they're very clean and pristine city of Las Vegas, Nevada. Um, <laughs> it's uh, and the pricing is interesting as well. So I had a, a friend of mine on Facebook went and was at a business conf. It's also great because there's so many business conferences in Vegas. So you're getting all these business guys yeah. that are flying out there, and they haven't they haven't been around the ability to, to, to without having to break a law, be able to walk into a building and purchase weed. There's so many of these guys that are coming out of retirement, 20 year plus <laughs> enterprise, middle management, seasoned veterans. It's it's hilarious, and you look at the pricing, and uh, you know, 27 percent banana Kush was 55 dollars for an eighth. So it, you know. Even though it's out west, even though it's in uh, more ma mature markets and stuff, we don't necessarily see some of the um, immediate uh, changes in pricing that we see, like in California and Washington State. In Oregon. So um, when you go through and you looked at some of those those taxes that were generated from Washington, what, what, what were the? Yeah. So let's findings? start. Let's let's look at the rates real quick of these. Uh, states that have a recreational program, and then we can look at the taxes that they collected from them. Uh, I'm not going to go through every single one, but just so people get an idea, each state's completely different. In California, there's two levels of taxes. There is a tax that the cultivators pay, which is $9.25 an ounce, and, um, and they pay that tax. And then there's also a sales tax or an excise tax, as they call it. It's not really a sales tax of 15% on the final sale of cannabis. Uh, much like California, Colorado is a 15% excise tax from the cultivator to the retailer. And then another 15% uh, sales tax at the final kind of outlet. So there's 30% taxes levied in the system somewhere. Um, and then you get down to some something like uh, Nevada, who has a rate of 15%. As determined by the fair market value, determined by the Nevada Department of Taxation. <laughs> so, if they don't like their revenues, they'll surely change them. And then uh, in 2017, they also created a new 10% sales tax paid by consumers. So, it's really 25%. And what people don't realize is that the taxes are there. They just don't see them at the register all the time. They've been collected throughout the process. Um, and then also levied on the final sale. And then we'll get down to the last two, my favorite, because I think these are both kind of states that Darby and I view as, you know, not have done the best job between Washington and Oregon. I mean, you look at the prices there, there's companies going out of business all the time. The market's flooded with all kinds of stuff. Um, Oregon, it doesn't have a general sales tax in the state, uh, but it levies a 17% sales tax on the sale of marijuana. And Washington levies a 37% sales tax on the sale of recreational marijuana. So when you look at the revenues collected, from that, the state of Washington, and these are kind of estimated uh, for 2018, and this is done by Forbes, so obviously I'll trust their estimating. Um, the state of Washington should have collected $319 million in revenue last year just through the tax on recreational marijuana. Um, Do you know what they estimated? What's that? Do you know what I, they, I don't know what the state estimated at sometimes first. Sometimes we hear, like sometimes the naysayers will say, oh, well, we see California estimated X, Y, Z, and they didn't get anywhere near that. First off, California does a lot of poor estimating. I've seen them miss the ball on a lot of things, not just marijuana. Yeah. And um, we also look at at that state as probably one of the. It's almost like the. It's like the poster boy for how to not regulate cannabis. Um, they did a really poor job from the from the beginning. 
at one point in time, I was listening to a data scientist from New Frontier say, um, I know how many dispensaries are in California operating right now. California does not. The idea that the state was unable to police their, their own program is, is crazy. And I think that when folks try to say, well, you can't look at cannabis as a, a good source of revenue generation or you can't trust the expectations because California expected this and they only got that. I think that that might be an outlier and a poor example. I think when you look at Alaska, who I, I believe has done fairly well with um, the revenue um, from taxation of, of marijuana and cannabis, you look at Colorado, Colorado, who's funded pre-K and done some pretty cool initiatives based upon their cannabis revenues. That there, there is, there is this path of utilizing um, this taxation and, and high taxing of of cannabis to fund things in the community and I spoke today on an education panel and my whole thing was it's a risk reward if the, if the community is going to risk what, what may happen when you have an adult use program then they should get the rewards of the tax dollars and that's kind of how I believe there's this pro quo uh, way of, of making this work and it's just it's just something that we'll, we'll see continue forward um, as more states look at this as a, a taxable option We'll see, you know, how it comes from it. Not every state's do, do great on casino revenue, but Maryland seems to do better. And for myself, um, one of the things that, that I would argue without getting too much into Maryland specifically, but just to, uh, you have all these neighbors around you for any state. You know, you look at someone like Kansas who's got Colorado with all this, uh, this revenue coming in, and Kansas is spending all this money trying to keep the pot out. It, it seems like they're spending good money on bad money and it's it's not an economically feasible thing and i know that kansas isn't one of these states that's just you know not without economics disparity so you know i think the other states will start looking at, at taxing this as a commodity um and realizing that you know maybe 35 percent or 40 percent is a little high but to get 20 percent or 25 percent is not unreasonable and the market can bear that if it's done properly yeah, just I'll run through some of the numbers for the other states real quick, just yeah. so everybody can get an idea. But California, when you look at these numbers, you also got to think of it's not just oh, well, they collected this amount of money and they collected this amount of money. You got to think about California's a state that people from around the world travel to. It's the most populous state in the country. They collected three hundred million dollars last year, so almost as much as Washington, but probably five times the amount of the population and a hundred times the amount of the visitors that go there. Um, Colorado, $266 million, which is the most mature market of all of them. And then Oregon, $94.4 million. I think Oregon's program just has so many problems. And the way they've regulated, kind of, I think, the so we spoke to earlier. a third of what the other states Of what the other states did. And they're all on that same timeline and trajectory. But Oregon's done such a bad job at the program that, like, I, I, I mean... It, the sales revenue is not there because there's so much supply in the market that everything's so cheap. So you can't collect a lot of dollars on something that's so cheap. And then you have every single state around Oregon that has the same program. So it's just a weird situation. Um, and then Nevada, $69.8 million. Um, Alaska, $11 million. Massachusetts, $5.2 million. And that wasn't for the full year. I, I think that had to be for a partial. Yeah, right? just for the part year. I don't know exactly how it was. And then you have... Three other states and one district of Columbia who have essentially legalized to a degree, but the programs aren't necessarily operational yet. DC is a great example of a super dysfunctional program <laughs> that could be overly robust and amazing. But we talk about how you can purchase medical or recreational weed in DC. 
You yeah. want to talk about that? Yeah, go ahead. I'll, so it's funny. <laughs> like if any, if, if people don't know, so like DC, it's a district of Columbia, right? It's not a state. There are certain things that they can and cannot do. It's a complete cluster. Um, so the people of the district of Columbia voted to legalize recreational cannabis. Um, but the government, I believe, right? Some Andy Harrison and, and the team made sure that it wasn't this initiative was not funded. Yep. So basically, yes, you can do it, but we're not giving you any dollars to actually get this thing off the ground. So you can do it. And the funny thing is, is you have to buy something else, right? There's pop-ups all over the streets of D.C. I worked in D.C. for years and I used to see them. Um, I mean, it's open. People you talk sh- about it. You show up it. to the nightclub at, at 9 o'clock and it, it's like it's a glorified farmer's market slash baked goods sale. And they'll sell you a sticker for a dollar, yep. and for that dollar sticker, oh, by the way, you get an eighth of, yep. of weed. That, so, yeah, $60 sticker, right? Yeah. They'll sell you a sticker for 60 oh, sorry, bucks. Sorry, sorry, $60 yeah. sticker. A $60 sticker, a $100 shirt, and then with that purchase, you also get, because you can gift it. That's like the weird thing, is that you, you're able to like gift something. It's some weird laws, and I'm not the most well-versed in them, but technically they can get away with it and it happens every day. I know people who do it. I've seen it happen. I've seen the pop-ups on the streets. It's a weird thing. And because of that, that market, their medical program has suffered. I mean, we know that we know some of the operators of their medical program and they've never truly gotten a full set of steam because there's this, this gray slash, it's not necessarily a black market, but it's a gray market. And it's, it's troublesome because I think the one thing that I've, I've realized in, without sounding like the suit tie guy in the weed job is that there there are a, a million reasons why as a consumer you'd want a highly regulated cannabis industry yeah. that you don't want some guy making shatter in his freaking garage that you don't want dudes growing even even just growing cultivating with their left to their own devices because when they get mold they're using they're using harmful stuff to, to remediate it they're not just gonna say oh well I'm just going to throw out these 13 pounds of thousands of dollars of profit that I planned on making these last three months. You know, we've seen we've seen in California specifically heavy metals and vape cartridges, um, pesticides, um, just tons of of nasty junk and crap in this fairly clean natural plant. And uh, unfortunately, I know folks, everybody wants homegrown and everybody wants it to be free and no one wants to pay anything. But they're. There are truly a ton of benefits, especially for someone that's using this as a medicine um, to make sure that you're in a highly regulated market. And although Maryland has got its struggles with the regulations, I think more and more often we speak endearingly of our regulations than we speak in terms of how they really impair us from doing our jobs. Because when I look at other states and I know that they tell these folks, hey, everything's lab tested and this is super safe. And then the patients come to find out the news article stated actually nothing is safe and it, it creates all this consumer confidence issues and I don't think we really run into that a lot in Maryland so that piece of it I'm, I'm pretty good yeah that, I mean that goes hand in hand with like just talking about how different states regulate um, which I guess yeah kind of leads into the next so when you get out of those really wild wild west or, or really open market states like the Colorados of the world um, and Vegas then you start getting into more like license specific and more restrictive states um that basically have the most robust medical program. So um, I would I would lump Maryland, um, Massachusetts before they went wreck. Really, it's actually, it's a lot of the states that I'm speaking of within the last 24 months have now gone wreck. I mean, Nevada, uh, Arizona, 
um, when we were doing our research, we alluded to, we didn't feel like when we were writing our application, we didn't really feel like we could necessarily use Colorado or California as, as the bar because they were much more mature markets. So we were looking at earlier markets and I believe that we pulled from Arizona, Arizona was a good sure. model for where Maryland is. And if you look at it, it's kind of eerie how the two programs have kind of, uh, moved hand in hand with each other. So real quick, for those keeping track at home, we'll go through some of the things that we think are kind of requirements for a medical program to be successful. Um, first is is the specificity of cannabis products. We have seen almost all the programs that don't allow for flower. Um, they are substantially less active. They're substantially less endorsed by patients. Um, Patients still in our dispensary are purchasing about 50% flour. Um, at one point, it was close to 75. It has gone down with the addition of vape pens and concentrates and tablets and tinctures and patches and all the other modalities that folks have to, to use, but still have a very, very strong flour base in our dispensary, and that exists in the nation. And these states that don't allow for flour, like we're seeing Virginia's getting ready to come on board. There's no flour allowed there. Or if it is, it's capped at a, a fairly yeah, low. I don't, I don't think Virginia has flour. I think it's I, all oils. Yeah, it's all oils. Um, so not only not flour, but I don't think they're allowed to have any of the other things that we have. I think they'll use those oils in vape cartridges and, uh, and figure some of this stuff out. But they, they're going to struggle. Uh, when we talked to one of the processors who's actually got a license in Virginia, um, they were telling us that I know for a fact THC is capped, right? But THCA is not. So when you look at live res products, they have THCA, not THC. And until that person goes home and activates it. So these lawmakers are going to continue to try to get savvy in terms of how they're going to try to cap the arbitrarily. That's cap interesting. <laughs> the market is going to arbitrate. The market is going to be very strategic to, to what the patients yeah. and what the population wants. And, they don't necessarily want all low THC products. And if you say THC and someone says, well, you didn't say THCA, they're going to they're gonna push that envelope. So, and and there's a good chance that if they don't have the A behind it, it different. holds up. Yeah, yeah I mean, we a, saw the difference between shall and may. Yeah. Um, so We're seasoned attorneys at this point. <laughs> we are. Just kidding. So, don't ask me any questions <laughs> about being a lawyer. If you're yeah. a realtor, you're listening to this and we're not. Yeah. But... <laughs> If you're Joe Smo of my poli sci background at Salisbury University and what I've learned over the last five years, I'd be willing to, to take this to the next step. So anyway, back to what makes the program qualified and good. Um, you got to have flour. Um, you want to have limited uh, verbiage and restrictions around THC content. You know, we saw Maryland not have edibles. And although patients griped, it did not hinder um, the program. It didn't hinder the growth. And in full validation of what i just said maryland said no edibles and all of a sudden one of the delivery drivers shows up to my store my store with what i thought was a gummy and quickly learned of the word trochee which is a soft lozenger not a gummy and all of a sudden ph has got glorified gummies so and 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 now and and now three other vendors are making the exact similar product and then Larry Hogan, our, the governor of the great state of Maryland, signed into effect yesterday an edibles bill for the state of Maryland. So now the program will have edibles, and they're working to coming up with how they're going to regulate that um, right now. So I mean, you stay see tuned. It'll be an interesting ride. You can imagine a level of scrutiny on a food and brev- beverage product alone, and then with this federally illegal 
DEA regulated substance. I can't wait to see who's scratching their head, Maryland Department of Health and Mental Hygiene right now. But we will see that that rollout. So it doesn't always have to include everything. It doesn't always have to have edibles. It doesn't always have to have everything. But for a program to be successful, it's got to have flour. You got to have vape cartridges and you got to have concentrates that are going to have the higher THC contents because that's what people want. And truthfully, um, that gives them the incentive to stop buying on the street. If you have someone who buys flour and all of a sudden you open a dispensary with expensive oil that they can't relate to, they don't really have an aspiration of purchasing, they're not going to jump through all those hurdles when they can just go to their buddies who they've been getting flour, pot, cannabis, weed from for 10 years. There's no, there's no incentive there. Maryland got to a point when we first opened where our flour was, was, was much higher than what the, the street was. And it was a huge barrier of entry to a lot of folks. And when you look at it now, we're doing $7 grams, and all of a sudden someone says, okay, I can get a lab-tested product, high quality, at uh, equal rate, uh, or sometimes even cheaper than what I was paying on the street. Now I have this incentive to, to join a medical program. Remember, the medical program is going to require some level of hurdles for a patient well, going to a doctor, getting a card. You know, if they spend $300 on a process before they even get into our door, many of them are going to say, well, that was, that's an ounce that I could have instead of just joining a little program. So there has to be these incentives for these medical programs to do well. A full variety of products is going to be one of them. The next is going to be qualifying conditions. You got to make it easy for folks to go and have a productive conversation with a, a healthcare provider Depending on states, I mean, some states are physicians, some states are nurse practitioners, some states are physicians' assistants. We see the different uh, chiropractors, midwives, dentists. So every state's going to have different criteria for folks that are able to to basically write these recommendations. But you need to have a system in place so that a patient doesn't feel like they're going to get shot down or that there's not going to be a chance for them to obtain this recommendation. Maryland, for us, has been fairly good in terms of and at least in the Eastern Shore, we have many, many practitioners. Most of them are open-minded. We find that our patients are more and more likely to have um, sustainable conversations and being open and honest with these folks as opposed to the conversations they were having with their primary care uh, providers, you know, five or ten years ago. And they're saying, oh, do you use any legal drugs? And they say, oh, absolutely not. And they go home and take a bong hit before they go to sleep because that's the only thing that helps them sleep at night. So qualifying conditions, you know, in Maryland, I think we have – 12 or 13 Yeah, I can't remember how many is exactly. And, and and it just the, added some too. And then the one biggest outlier uh, is going to be Maryland has a, a condition that if a physician has a reasonable expectation that medical cannabis can give a health benefit uh, that traditional pharmaceuticals or traditional medicine is not, then a healthcare provider can extend almost an off-label style recommendation to that patient. Off-label is, is typically what they see in the, in the medicine and prescription world where um, if, uh, let's say, it's a medication for high blood pressure, but it also um, has a calming effect, you might see a, a doctor off-label write that prescription for anxiety, even though the FDA testing and everything behind that drug is supportive more around lowering blood pressure. Same thing in Maryland. If there's this reasonable expectation, even though it's not on the list, this doctor can then write and recommend medical cannabis for uh, for patients based upon their ability to, to have that health impact. 
Uh, the next thing is going to be once you have your qualifying conditions, you have all the different modalities is the limits. You know, Maryland has very robust limits. We're 120 grams of flour. Or when you talk about limits, it's just talking about uh, how much an individual is allowed to purchase in a given period of time. In Maryland, it's a month. Other states may be different, but yeah, most so of them impose the limits. Yep. Um, we've seen different, but what you're looking for is a, is a program that's not going to be overly restrictive so that if you have someone that is a heavy cannabis user, they're not incentivized to say, okay, well, I can only buy my one ounce a month here at the dispensary, but I go through two ounces, so I'm buying one ounce on the street and one ounce in the dispensary. You need to make it so that your limits are robust enough that there's a reasonable expectation that almost all patients can be served without uh, being turned turned away because they met their max uh, allotment for the month or, or week or bi-week, whatever, however it's regulated. Um, you know, just to put it in perspective, I mean, that's almost four, four ounces or an ounce a week for Maryland. Um, there is even an exception that patients can, can apply for an exemption to go over that amount. I would say that's less than two or three percent of our patient population. Um, but there are folks that are, you know, I know for one is a Crohn's patient who's typically cooking with his medical cannabis. Um, so he's, he goes through a whole lot of cannabis, but because he's been, because basically of his need and his tolerance that's built up from years and years of using high levels of cannabis, it's, it's not truly out of. It's not out of the standard deviation for protocol when you look at how he's medicating. So he just he just needed to get that exemption. But his case is, is definitely out of the norm for him. So these states that, that don't have flour, that don't have wide limits, that... Um, oh, vertical integration. Uh, we see that states that require a vertical integration typically have fairly... Um, trivial and they, they, these programs struggle to get off the ground. Um, there's a lot of reasons behind it. So when I say vertically integrated programs, for instance, Delaware. Delaware requires that the dispensary that sells the product processes that product and grows that product. They, they cannot do um, intercompany transfers. They have to be basically self-fulfilling. When you look at our dispensary and one of our secret sauces is the fact that we have such a robust variety of products. Um, you know, we typically have over 40 strains of flour. We typically have 30 to 50 types of vape carts. Um, you know, we have uh, over 150 SKUs in our dispensary. If we were tasked with making and processing all 150 of those SKUs ourselves, it would be more like 20 to 30. And, I mean, that's what we see. Even these vertically integrated companies like Curio and Grassroots, I mean, these guys all have dispensaries, and there's not a single dispensary in Maryland that only sells their product. Yeah. I mean, Curio has to work with Rhythm and GTI. They have to work with um, Harvest and all these other Veranos and the, the other companies out there to be able to really provide that full product selection that makes them competitive. Folks in Delaware, you know, you're, this is a, a plant. This is something that has very little predictability in, in some ways of planning and you know, if there's a run on the indica flower that you didn't predict and all of a sudden you're out of indica and you don't have anybody to call and buy it from, then you're out of indica for weeks. Yeah. Months. Months. Depending. In some cases. So, um, you know, the, we see in New York it's a vertically integrated program um, and it struggles. Um, I'm not sure. If, I don't know if New Jersey is or I'm not. not sure. I don't know. If, but we, you know, one of the reasons why New Jersey struggles is because their qualifying conditions list and their limited number of dispensaries. Um, we saw 
what seemed like almost a full legalization pro program was gaining tons of traction in New Jersey. I read an article yesterday. The reason why it was tabled because it was going to lose by one vote. That's all it takes, right? That's all it takes. And then once it loses once, then it's a it can be considered a losing yeah. effort, and everything's politics. So it's better to table something than have it lose and a vote. Um. But if I'm a patient in New Jersey, I'm still sitting here with my hands in the air saying, what the hell? Because I was probably excited the fact that you were going to take away the bureaucracy of my marginal medical program. And I was at least going to get an adult use program where at a minimum my access was going to increase. And it's almost like you guys went for the home run and you missed. But now the patients still have this shitty medical program in New Jersey. Like they, there was no, no benefit. I'm not sure that the medical program really got any better. Um, and the patients are still struggling there. So there's patients that are in New Jersey in a place where you have high populations and high traffic and illegal drugs are not overly difficult to ascertain. Like, I would assume that if I was a New Jersey resident right now, I can tell you that if I was a Delaware resident right now, I would be very much, uh, very likely to be a street purchaser of my cannabis. It's, it's highly unlikely that I would deal with, with the problems and, and the pain that Delaware patients deal with because it was more difficult than the pain that I experienced trying to purchase weed illegally on the streets. And New Jersey is probably similar, but all of a sudden if you change that access and you make it easier for these folks, you know, I think all of a sudden you'd see these programs, even in the medical side, be much more robust than what they are. So you got to have qualifying conditions. you got to have flour. you got to have um, – got to make it as easy as possible for these folks because in areas where access – on the street is is easy they're not going to do that barrier of entry to come into a legal program would you disagree no i don't um i think those are all good points and i think i'll if i can add one more i think and i might get a little bit of scrutiny for this one but i think that you need to have the right operators when you go through this process like i really think you need these 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 people that say, oh, you can't have these large companies come in and do these things. doesn't work. They take the jobs and blah, blah, blah. That's like the opposite of how to get programs successfully off the ground. I mean, these are really, really difficult industry to be in. Um, and you need guys who can handle it, who have the capital, who can handle the delays um, and everything that comes with it. So the stronger you know your players are in the industry, growers, processors, dispensaries, just you know, from the people that the states hire to regulate it. Like, I think Maryland's done a great job. Like, that whole, you just have to make sure that you have the right people in the right places. Right, and I think that's a great point. So, it starts with the states in terms of who's running their seed-to-sale system. Is it Metric, who had struggles in Maryland, but has proven to be pretty successful in other states, and knock on wood, has been I think we're almost like six months, are we longer than that now? No, I think six to eight months. With yeah, with with zero months. metric issues, December, like November, I think, I think the October, end November is when things started getting fixed because I remember going to a meeting in December and they said they were going to open up the ability for the point of sales to the fast track, the fast lane, track. The fast I, I'm rolling my eyes, going, "Oh, they ruined it again!" <laughs> but um, they've been good. It worked. You know, Maryland shit the bed with Resi. Um, in terms of the application process, the original uh, reviewers of the application. Um, that contract was not solidified in the nature to set expectations of how many applications Resi would be receiving or really the time that Resi would be able to process those applications. So when we've seen, you know, we've, we've seen the fruits of when Maryland picks a great operator or Maryland picks like a poor operator. And then it, it's up to us as well in terms of being operators. Like 
when we see these states open programs, immediately there's this like not in my backyard of wanting experience and out of state operators to come in, even though they they bring you a ton of sustainability, a ton of sustainability and a ton of immediate stability because their learning curves are decreased and they're able to get up and going. As a, a small independent, I certainly understand the, the, the fear of that, but I think it's important that um, operators work cohesively in whatever program they are because when they go after each other, they start cannibalizing each other. We see the effects and we see what happens when they're in poorly regulated markets. It becomes unsustainable and the black market prevails, which kind of leads us right into Maryland and where Maryland is in all this and like what may happen. So I think it's important to understand the landscape right now of what Maryland's program is and the legitimacy of it. So we advocate incredibly hard to treat our dispensary as a, with a clinical designation and really try to view this as a medical dispensary. And I would argue that we stand oftentimes alone or in a pack of a few. A few. What of a few? Of a few. When it's easier and sometimes more advantageous to get the quick thrills and, and treat thrills of just leaning on the subculture of, of marijuana and the stigmas and even though you're playing into the stereotypes that yeah, people even though you're doing yeah. this under the badge of hey I'm knocking down stereotypes you're actually fueling yeah. stigmas and preconceived notions and we're not really necessarily moving the cannabis away from this countercultural rare thing into this mainstream normal medication slash substance right so in a place like Maryland what I would assume that would happen is if um, we saw legalization come in to play, we would see a division of sex, S-E-C-T, uh, sex, um, where a few of us would still be very focused on the medical side of this and continuing to serve patients. And I think a lot of the ones, the majority of folks that I alluded to that really don't have a medical mindset are almost going to take this as a breath of fresh air of, oh, I could finally relax and stop trying to put up this medical front, take down all this medical stuff, put up my Cheech and Chong posters, put up my Grateful Dead, and really plead into all of the Bob Marley and countercultural and stigmas of, uh, of a recreational program and likely leave patients seeking sound medical advice behind. And I've, I've been thinking about this a lot. You know, it, our circumstances changed significantly over the last 60 days when Maryland passed a law from one dispensary to four dispensaries. Um, because we, and so this session we saw a couple of things happen, but we saw the one to four, and then we saw the working group um, become initiated for exploring recreational cannabis in Maryland. There's groundlings that, Education is going to fall into some shortage of dollars and that, that cannabis might be seen as the boon to fill some of those dollars. Um, but we saw a lot of shift in terms of what our future looks like as a dispensary operator in Salisbury, Maryland, and the fact that there could be more multi-state operators and likely legalization of marijuana at a national or recreational or national or local level is something that would likely be seen within three to five years. 
then I don't think that I'm saying anything groundbreaking and saying that, and it, it may not happen for sure, but I think you'd be naive as a business owner in our position to not look at the future. So when I think about the, this, this new dichotomy of, of a legalized program in Maryland, I think of a couple of things. Go, we'll try to talk about different aspects of it. Maybe we'll start with economics, right? I think it's a huge, huge economic opportunity for the state of Maryland. I think when Maryland watched Delaware kick their ass in casinos and watched uh, West Virginia steal people, I mean, people were driving from Baltimore to Charleston, West Virginia at a rate that they had never gone to West Virginia before when they legalized the gambling. And I think that with, as we mentioned, Delaware having a horrible program, Virginia likely off to a rocky start. Maryland, with a well-regulated, legalized program, would be the southernmost state. D.C. is is dysfunctional as well. Would be the southernmost state with a legit program. Pulling from, and you look at where we where we sit on the peninsula. I mean, we would be pulling from Virginia. We'd be pulling from Delaware. We would be pulling these out-of-state dollars in and and injecting them right into our local economy, which is like the end goal of, of any economic development director in, in any county, in any, sit, any state, anywhere. Um, so, and, and Maryland has shown an appetite for, for enjoying cannabis. Um, and I, I just think that, that with the Kerwin administration, as we mentioned in the very first podcast, coming up with this defi- deficit and the ability to tax rec- adult consumption cannabis at a 20 to 30 percent tax rate the economics of this make a lot of sense yeah and i mean if you just think of it i mean we have we're privileged enough to live here i mean just if i'm if i'm in the state of maryland i look at the state that's the wealthiest in the country right property values are consistently among the highest anywhere because of dc and baltimore and a lot of these suburbs and like darby alluded to the (coughs) excuse me Tourism is huge in the state of Maryland. We have the mountains, we have the eastern shore, and we also have a ton of policymakers in Maryland. And Maryland's medical program is kind of looked at as the gold star of the medical program. So I think that if Maryland can do the recreational thing right, it really paves the way to you know greater federal decriminalization or kind of allowing its use. Um, and I think the state's definitely going to look at it. They formed a working group this year. Um, it's probably going to be a ballot initiative in 2020. And, I mean, we see rates in the state, I mean, 60 65% of the voters in Maryland uh, agree that it should be recreational. I think the stigmas are kind of fading away. And also because I think Maryland's done a great job in the medical program. I mean, people look at that medical program and say, okay, well, here's a proxy. Not exactly, but here's a proxy for how rec's going to look. Um, and they've done a good job regulating it. Uh, sales are good. The companies are flourishing. There's been no real, like, kind of bad black eyes on the program. Aha moments. Some, some pragmatist was like, aha, I told you this yeah. was going to happen. Like, we haven't had that in Maryland. And the, and the more we continue to go down that route, the more recreational not only becomes probable, but I think it's likely. I mean, it's going to happen. I think we are going to – I think Maryland's going to be the first state – like Darby said, south and east, it's going to legalize it, and it's going to be looked at as a proxy. When you look at a map, um, the states, the so basically the northeast is, is mostly has medical programs of some nature coming down to Maryland. 
Um, now Virginia just added a medical program. And then it sneaks west a little bit. Ohio's got a medical program. Illinois, Missouri. West Virginia's got a new one, right? Yep. That southeast is gray. And every map uses green because it's all weed, right? So every map you look at, it's all like light green and dark green in the west coast and the east coast, northeast. And then like a little matching coming in the middle with Colorado. And then the southeast is just always gray. So from I'm looking at the map now. So from the state of Virginia all the way through the La- Appalachians, all the way down to Mississippi, including Tennessee, Kentucky, and Indiana, that entire swath of the country, there's not a single medical or recreational program right now. And we didn't even talk about this, but now's a great time. Like <laughs> We talk about how regulated states are with, with marijuana. I looked at a map and saw like CBD laws. Like, good golly. I mean, we saw the lady get harassed at Disney World in, in last week in, for having CBD oil on and taking her to jail. And, like, you know, it's it was still mind-boggling to me that when you look in those southern states, a lot of them still have fairly, like, none of them, most of them are, are not completely restrictive. But a lot of them, I was amazed at the language and the verbiage that's still in place around something like CBD that's non-intoxicating, that's really been proven at this point to be far more um, beneficial than it once was thought of and, and certainly far less um, harmful, you know, any, any types of harmful side effects. It's not addictive. It's, it, there's not really anything negative that can happen with CBD other than if you stop taking it, whatever it was helping is not going to be helped any longer. Um, so, the, you know, I think when we get we get bullish and excited, we realize that that, that southern s- – Swath is not going to stay like that forever. I mean, you have states in there like North Carolina, which you know has a ton of younger you people Asheville, moving into North the Carolina, state. Right, it's yeah. a beautiful place. It's very progressive. You're seeing more and more places like that pop up in that South area. South Carolina, Georgia, Spartanburg. Yeah, I mean Tennessee. These states are going to eventually. I mean, they don't live in a bubble. That's for sure. And I can assure you that there are people in those states who are cannabis users. And there's people <laughs> in those states that are sitting there that, that were at one point mining something or at one point we're looking yeah, at fossil fuels point. or we're yep. looking at these different areas of, of industri- industry and saying, well, that's gone by the wayside now. And we have the 70,000 square foot building that no one's been in for 10 years. And we can put a cultivator in here. And within a year, turn a $20 million business, employ 50 people. It's, it's, and then there's the opioid epidemic, right? There's this, 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 this dichotomy now of opioid epidemic is, is widespread through every single community in the United States. And more dollars and more cents are needed to, to combat this. And cannabis is showing in medical states of a 25% reduction in some ways. We're seeing it every day in our dispensary. So there's this thing that cannabis could be a, a beacon and a tool to combat this opioid epidemic. And, oh, by the way, a significant generation of tax dollars. And, in in you know, I don't care what state you're in. Everyone's looking for budget. I mean, everyone's got budget concerns and everyone's trying to, to cut the pie into another slice. And they're always looking for new ways to generate revenue. And, like, there's only, you know, when you look at how governments generate revenue, taxing is the least um, politically um, advantageous, right? Like, you, no, one, no, one, no one wants to be the politician that runs around saying taxes are going up, 
right? So taxing income and Sales. being able to generate economic development to create a larger tax base is a much more strategic way for these folks to be able to generate tax dollars than just raising the rates on their current base. So I think you know that the South will see this the spur of of cannabis, but they're going to lag behind. I think I think you know Maryland's in the sweet spot. I think, and Maryland's still a year behind, a year and a half behind. But I think um, for the economics of it, it makes a lot of sense. I think from a patient perspective, what you'll see is there'll there'll be a few of us that will keep our medical model and and still go after and cater to the patient base and i think the patient base will continue to grow as cannabinoid-based wellness and cannabinoid-based medicine becomes more and more popular but one of the things that you do run into with an overly robust medical program is these operators that are able to kind of run under a rec style culture and it that hurts traditional patients right like if if i'm a 60 year old woman with lyme disease which is kind of this when we create our dispensary, we created this fictitious patient, at least I did in my head, and she was a 60-year-old woman with Lyme disease, and she's never used cannabis before a day in her life, and she's at her wit's end, and she wants to be able to, to see if cannabis is going to help her. I want her to feel comfortable from start to finish in my dispensary, whether it's from our website, whether it's from when she walks through the door, patient consultant, the entire experience should be something that you shouldn't have to be a cannabis enthusiast to get through our dispensary. And I think that if maybe you take the burden of trying to have a medical front off of some of these guys and they can, oh, they can go right and just participate in the adult use and rec markets, you might actually see some progress being made with research, with patient outcomes, because the folks that are still doing medicine are, are still focused around actually that piece of it. And the folks that just really wanted to run a rec store are able to go out and do that piece as well. So I think there's a piece of that that could be beneficial to patients as well yeah i think i'll add that i think there's going to be this middle ground of the wellness piece i think you're going to see a ton of i think you're going to see a lot of people who you know they might be older they might be younger who knows that have either tried it once and don't you know just don't want to do it because it's illegal and then all of a sudden they want to go in the store but at the same time they want to know what they're doing like they want to go in there and say oh i'm going on a you know, I'm going on a hike with my friends next Tuesday and sometimes I get a little sore and I just want to make sure I have a great time and you'd be able to give them and uh, consult with them and tell them about how a specific product's going to make them feel better on their hike. I don't want to feel and anxious about work or yeah. leaving the kids behind. I want something that's going to allow me to be in the moment and, and enjoy my hike. And, and like, I think you're going to find that wellness piece is going to be that mesh of there's people that are definitely going to stay on the medical track, like Darby said, just because they need it. Right, we're betting, chances, on, we're, we're betting on the met. We're betting on the wellness piece. Yeah, and the chance and the chances are like there's going to be THC restrictions on this stuff. And then for the rec side, you're going to have the people that want to come in and say, "I want to do slab dabs all day. Give me your cheapest concentrate because I want to put it on YouTube and show you how cool I am." But you know that's fine. That's I mean, <laughs> that's what they want to do. That's the market, right? Right. Um, and then there's going to be that. I just think people that wellness piece. That. Yeah, and then that wellness piece, and then people are going to start to get more into it and. You know, just because it, it has so many different effects depending on what you're looking for and, and how you consume it. Yeah, I mean, I think the wellness piece, um, you're right. Like, there's there's folks that are, are using it like as a specific medicine to combat a specific diagnosis. And then there's folks that are using it more as a wellness tool. There's not necessarily a specific protocol. It's more of a an as-needed uh, basis. And for sure, that market is going to grow tremendously like you know when i think about adult use like i think about 
how many people are going to stop taking ibuprofen? <laughs> like, seriously, I mean, not not so much like today, but in 10 or 15 years with the research that we have about how bad something like ibuprofen can be on your liver and kidneys and how much research we have about how, how cannabis could be a, a much better daily option for someone that says, you know, I take two Aleve every day for my back. I wouldn't be surprised if they're taking two, two three trochies. to one trochies <laughs> that are part CBD, part THC, and but they're not taking it every day. They, they cut wood today, so their back's flared up, and they're going to that route. The idea is that there's some folks that needed to stop a seizure, and they have a very specific regimen of how they're going to be using that medication. There's other folks that, like myself, you know, I've always in, I've always tried to put kind of put myself in the wellness the wellness book. I think you do too. Yep. Um, I think that market's going to grow. And to Chuck's point, um, they're not all of the adult use or adult access dispensaries are going to fall in the slab dab. Let's get as high as we possibly can. Great. Now everybody can get fucked up. Like, I don't think you know, there's going to be a market for that, but it's not, that's not the majority of the market. And that's not certainly the, the path that will go down to, to cater to. So, that's what I think. I think I think Maryland is set up economically to be in a really good position if if legalization comes um, because of all the groundwork they did with their their medical program. I think it would be more restrictive, similar lines of a Massachusetts or an uh, Arizona, not so much like a Nevada or Alaska. Um, and I think that folks should be looking at how we can utilize tax dollars based on their reward our community. And education is something that is obviously something that's near and dear to my heart and uh, I believe a, a great place for it to go. I think I'll give, I'll give my bold prediction is that rec comes to Maryland. It, it gets on the ballot next year in 2020 and it passes by, you know. Ooh, let's pick a number. I would go, I'm going to go 71%. Passing rate? Yeah. It's, I know it's aggressive, but. That is an aggressive number. I don't think I can be that aggressive. I'll go 63%. That would still be, I mean, that would I mean, still that's a landslide, right? Um, and then also, I think, I think Maryland's medical program drug on for two and a half years, three years before it actually came to fruition from the time the applications were filled out. I think that the recreational market, because of the taxes um, and, uh, and because of the established medical market, it's going to come to fruition and come to market way quicker. I bet it happens within 18 months of that legislation passing. And you're already going to have operations in place that they can give yep. that ability to. So what we saw with David Moon's bill uh, was that if you currently had a medical program license and you were going to be grandfathered into a, a rec license, the, the, I guess, uh, without backtracking too much, we see different models for that in states that have both. So in some states, you see completely separate buildings and completely separate businesses. One's a rec and one's medical in some places like Colorado, the building's almost like cut in half. If you're a state resident, you show your state resident ID, and then you can go into the adult use uh, or the medical side. And then if you were a non-resident and don't have a medical card, then you would go to the other side. The other side's going to have high taxes, lower THC content, lower product selection. The medical side's going to have low taxes or no taxes, um, normally a larger variety of products and normally higher THC contents. So, podcast number three—that is, uh, that is cannabis at a, a national level, kind of a state-by-state look at different programs and and how they are juxtaposed next to each other. A um, couple things on our agenda: 
Um, our next, hopefully within the next two or three podcasts, you'll see us have our first guest on. Uh, I know that'll be really entertaining for you guys to be able to see us interact with other folks and not just talking back and forth to each other. So that's uh, something we're looking forward to. And then also just in c- continuing to increase the amount of shows that we do. Um, trying to get to that one a week is uh, is challenging, but we'll continue to work through that. So like, comment, share with your friends. Um, Anthony Darby signing out. Chuck? No, nope, I think that's good. Thanks for watching and listening. I uh, hope to see you back next week.